book of Esther tonight. I love the book of Esther. The book of Esther um, is only one of two books that's um, named after uh, a woman. Uh, first book was Ruth, and now we've got Esther. Interestingly, Ruth was a Gentile who ends up marrying a Jewish man. And now Esther is a Jewish woman that ends up marrying a Gentile man. And so very interesting how that kind of all lines up. Esther wasn't the writer of the book of Esther. Uh, we're not sure exactly who it was. It's very possible that it was Mordecai who we'll see in the story. Some believe it, it, it could have been Ezra or Nehemiah because these are kind of, you know, at the same time, Esther is a story that's taken place in between the time that Zerubbabel and then Ezra left Babylon, went back to Israel, and then before Nehemiah took his group back to uh, Jerusalem, Esther takes place right in between those two stories and those two books. So this is kind of the, the timeline of Esther. Now the book of Esther, um, some of the main characters that we're going to be seeing here and that really the story is revolving around is, of course, Esther, uh, Mordecai, King uh, Ahur. Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus, all right, I almost messed up, or Xerxes, uh, as he's also known, that that's the, the Greek name, uh, Xerxes there, so Ahasuerus, Esther, Mordecai, and then Haman, so these four characters is really who the story kind of revolves around, it's, it's an incredible story of, of romance, sacrifice, espionage, suspense, irony, just like most of your marriages. It's kind of just like that sort of a thing, but a lot of twists in the story as well. Now, if you were to write a script based on a story like this and hand it into some kind of Hollywood director, they'd go, oh man, come on, we're not doing a movie on this. This is too far-fetched. Nobody's going to believe this. And yet here it is in the Bible, a true story. It's the story of Esther, the story of the Jewish people. And in their time there in, in Babylon, which, which became under Persian rulership, as we'll see here. So it's a dramatic, riveting story that we have here in the book of, of Esther. And it's got some wonderful insights just into God's providence and sovereignty. Providence and sovereignty of God here is, is just kind of all through these pages. Now, what's interesting about the book of Esther is that there's no mention of God at all. Nobody's speaking about God. We don't have any kind of, you know, talk of God. Here's no mention of prayer. It's rather kind of just on, at face value, a very unreligious book. But what we could consider as a book that's void of God, we actually see, again, just his divine presence and providence all through it. Now, that word providence, that idea of providence comes from the words pro, before, and video to see. In other words, God sees all and knows all from the beginning to the end and from the end to the beginning. The prevailing of his will in all situations to provide for his creation is what we would refer to as his providence. And throughout scripture, there's, another, uh, uh, there's a number of examples that we see just of God working out that providential will of God. We see it with Joseph. Every bad event became a good event in, in Joseph's life. Jonah, he gets thrown overboard and there happens to be a fish. Comes along just the right time. Moses, uh, when he's put in the baby basket, floated down the Nile right to Pharaoh's daughter. Then you got Saul and David. When, you know, David's on the run, Saul goes and, you know, relieves himself in a, in a cave that David happens to be in and allows David just to show his loyalty uh, to, to Saul. So we see all through scripture, just examples of God's 
providence that God is leading and moving and acting even when you think perhaps that he's not. So Esther becomes a story that's just full of, of lessons of God's providence, moving everything along just to accomplish his purposes. Alexander McLaren said this, the book, this book of Esther does not say much about God, but his presence broods over it all and is the real spring that moves the movers that are seen. It is all a lesson of how God works out his purposes throughout men or through men that seen themselves to be working out theirs. I love that. It's a lesson of how God works out his purposes through men that seem to be working out their own will. So that's cool. Esther, her name, uh, it, it can mean star or that which is hidden. That which is hidden. And again, that just kind of summarizes the book of Esther for us because the work of God, the hand of God is all through the book yet hidden you know, kind of to Esther at face value, just, you know, kind of seeing it for what it is. You don't see that just kind of jumping on you, but it's there behind the scenes, no doubt. His guiding presence is seen hidden in the story, but even greater, his very name, God's name, is hidden throughout this story. Look at Esther 1. Now, what's neat is that the book of Esther, we have the name Yahweh uh, in the Hebrew as they would spell it out, Y-H-W-H or, or Y-V-W-H. It appears four times in acrostic form. And again, an acrostic is making a word out of the first letter of a series of words. For instance, NATO, right? North Atlantic Treaty Organization. That's a, an acrostic. So we have in, in Esther 1.20, an acrostic, and, and you'll see that the initial letters are being used, and it's going, you know, backwards now to spell out that word going from, from left to right rather than right to left as Hebrew would read, so it's going backwards, um, and, and so it's showing that God is kind of turning back the counsels of man. Interestingly, that is being spoken of by a, a Gentile there, and then in Esther 5.4, we see that the initial letters there. Um, are, are again now going from, from right to left. This is a Jew that's speaking in here now and it's God was ruling and causing Esther to act so it's moving forward that way, the way that's supposed to be read. Esther 5.13, we see another acrostic there. Um, and then again, that's kind of uh, a backwards acrostic where letters at the end of each word, spell that out, Esther 5.13, and then in Esther 7.7, 7, we see that um, Haman's end has come. This is forward acrostic, letters at the end of each word. Spell that out. So what is happening here? It seems to be that God is, is ruling when the Jews are speaking, and he's overruling when the Gentiles are speaking. All right? It's as though when the Gentiles are speaking, God says, no, I'm going to reverse that. I'm going to do the opposite of what you think you're going to do. When a Jew is speaking, it's just God is saying, yeah, that's the right flow here that I'm going to work in. So it's just kind of interesting how those all kind of work out that way. Now, here's what John Nelson Darby says about the book. He put it this way. God's ways are behind the scenes, but he moves all the scenes which he is behind. And so that really becomes kind of the idea, the theme that we see as we go through the book of Esther, just that providence, that sovereignty of God at work there. Here's what we're going to be seeing as we go through this, this outline of Esther First of all, supernatural providence, chapters one to two. Then we'll see the satanic plotting at the hands of Haman, chapters three to five. And then the sovereign protection, uh, chapters six to 10. 
So you can also say the selection of Esther, chapters one and two. You can say the detection of Haman and then the protection of Israel. So that's kind of what we'll be seeing here. Let's look at chapter one. Let's read a few verses here just to kind of give us a bit of context now. Chapter one, verse one. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel, that in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. So, Historians tell us that this feast that we read about here was uh, this attempt by Ahasuerus to form this coalition to fight against the, the rising empire of Greece. Now, Ahasuerus' dad, Darius, remember King Darius, he's already gone out um, against Greece. Now, he's, Darius was, was great just kind of expanding the Persian empire. He was great success in that, but then kind of went up against Greece to try to bring them down this battle of marathon 490 bc but yet darius suffered a, a shameful defeat at the hands of greece so azurus now is looking to take some revenge for that loss and to avenge you know his own father so he sets out here now to show off his kingdom to see how great it was you know and it was but in attempts to just kind of impress people and draw them into allegiance now with Ahasuerus. And history also tells us that Ahasuerus had a very bad temper, all right? He was a man that was prone to fly into a rage. Look at verse 10 of chapter 1. Verse 10, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abakta, Zethar, and Carcass, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials for she was beautiful to behold. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious and his anger burned within him. So here we see an example now of three things that's gonna really bring this man down. Pride, drunkenness, and anger. We see all these things. Mary with wine, it tells us there in, in verse um, 10. He's very prideful and wanting to show off the kingdom, and yet he's also a man uh, of great anger. This king, he was a master of a great empire, but yet seemed like he wasn't able to bring himself uh, under control and kind of be a master to his own self. His pride got the better of him while his drunkenness caused him to lose control, which then opened the floodgates just to that anger bursting forth and that rage. Pride, you see, will oftentimes feed that anger and anger is gonna come and reinforce that pride. It becomes a vicious kind of circle. Proverbs 16, 32 says, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty and he who rules his spirit than he who takes the city. Sometimes we think, oh man, no, we gotta, we gotta show them who's boss. We gotta fly into a rage. And yet the Bible says, no, he was slow to anger. We can control that is greater, better than the mighty, it says. So Queen Vashti, she was put away. 
she's removed from her position because she didn't want to come and just sort of be this, you know, trophy wife and, and kind of have her husband just kind of show her off and, and everything like that. So she refuses. She's put away now, all right? She's deposed, basically, and uh, she's out of the picture here. And then in chapter 2, it says, after these things, look at that, chapter 2, verse 1, after these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. And that was, again, to send her away. Then the king's servants who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan the citadel into the women's quarters under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the woman, and let beauty preparations be given them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And that thing pleased the king, and he did so. Now, first of all, chapter 2 starts after these things. So after what things? Now, it seems that there was about up to a four-year period between chapters 1 and chapters 2. Again, a period of time where, as history tells us, Ahasuerus went out to kind of rekindle this battle against the Greeks there and continue on. But yet he, too, like his father, was soundly defeated by the Greeks. So he returns home now. He's dejected and he's hoping to maybe find comfort in his wife Vashti. And yet now he remembers Vashti, it says, and she's gone. He's got nobody to kind of lean on to kind of have somebody hold him where he can cry on someone's shoulder. He's got nobody. So he's feeling sad about this. And because it was a royal decree, it could not be reversed. And we'll see that as we move along here in other things. So it's suggested to the king, let's hold a Miss Persia, Persia pageant, basically, is what they're doing. All right? Let's gather some women together. We'll have them kind of pray themselves in front of you. We'll have a Miss Persia pageant, and you can select for yourself a new bride, basically, is what's taking place here. Find a replacement queen. And this is where we get introduced now to Mordecai and to Esther. Mordecai was a cousin to Esther and he had basically raised her as his own daughter. Her parents had passed away and so Mordecai raised her as his own daughter. They're related. Now Esther is one of these women that's selected now to be showcased in front of the king. So Mordecai tells her not to reveal her identity as a Jew because remember, there's still many Jews that were originally taken captive. They're living, they were living in Babylon, which is now Persia, you know, empire. And so there's many Jews that are still living there. And here's Esther. She's one of these Jews and Mordecai as well that are living there. So he says, don't tell the king your identity. Don't tell him, you know, the people that you're with and everything like that. So look at verse 16 of chapter 2. It says there, so Esther was taken to King Azurus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther more than all the other women and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther for all his officials and servants. And he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of of a king. So here's how the story is unfolding. Esther now becomes queen. 
She's linked to Ahasuerus now. This is all again the hand of the Lord directing and moving everything along according to his plans and his purposes. And this is seen again by following Mordecai as he uncovers this kind of sinister plot that's unfolding. It's right there in verse 21 of chapter two. In those days while Mordecai sat within the king's gate to the king's eunuchs, Bigdan and, and Tesra or Teresh, doorkeepers became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So God allows Mordecai now, because Esther's placed in that position where Mordecai has a relationship with Esther, where he can kind of pass this news on and say, hey, I've got news that's going to be very informative and helpful for the king. And so he passes this on. This gets recorded down. And so Mordecai is beginning to have some favor here with the king. Well, chapter three now, we're introduced here again to the next main character. And this is where the real intrigue and plot twist kind of begins to happen or where the, the plot kind of thickens here. Because everything seems to be going pretty well right now for, for Esther and Mordecai. They're sitting in a pretty good spot here. But a new person emerges onto the scene by the name of Haman, which the music goes, bum, bum, bum. It kind of keeps on the edge of your seat right now, right? So chapter three, verse one. Let's read a little bit here. Chapter three, verse one to verse six. Here's what we read. After these things... King Azurus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadath of the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gates bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gates said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily, and he would not listen to him that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had, they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. So, Haman comes along and he's right away gets into a bit of a, a feud, a, has a hatred towards Mordecai, which turns into just a hatred for the Jews. Now, what's interesting is, is Haman is identified as a what? An Agagite? Does anybody remember where that group of people kind of came from? Well, you'll remember in our study through 1 Samuel that Saul was told to wipe out the Amalekites. And Agag was the king of the Amalekites that Saul did not kill. When he was told to utterly destroy everything, do not keep anything aside, and yet Saul kept some of the choice things and he let the king remain. Agag, king of the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were sworn enemies of Israel. It was God who commanded Saul just to, to wipe them out here. But he didn't. This is what got Saul into a lot of trouble. Now remember, regarding this group of people, they had mercilessly came against Israel, attacked the rear ranks when, the, uh, when they were traveling through 
in the wilderness and, and kind of went after the, the weak and the elderly. And, and because of that action, God just kind of said, this is not good, this is not right. And interestingly, Amalek, the Amalekites, Amalek, he was the grandson of Esau. Okay, so Esau, he was a man after the flesh, a man who despised the things of God, the things of the spirit. He was willing to sell his own birthright to satisfy his appetite. So in scripture, the Amalekites, they really become a picture of the flesh. They repeatedly were those that came against Israel. And it's a reminder that we will battle with the flesh, but God's given us victory over it. We must be sure that we walk in victory. So God said he would have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Exodus 17, verse 16, God says, listen, I'm just gonna, you know, have it with these guys here. And it was in the time of King Saul that God said it was time to wipe them out, as we've been saying here. But Saul spares Agag and all that was good from the Amalekites. And, and it was a lesson because how did Saul end up dying? It was by an Amalekite. And so it became that lesson that if we're not those that will kind of deal with the flesh, which the Amalekites are a picture of, then it's going to have a way of coming back to, to take us out, to bring us down. We need to completely cut it off. Don't play around with sin. Don't play around with the flesh. Because if we leave just a little bit, like Saul would have been thinking, oh, it's just one guy, just a few choice livestock, no big deal. But yet it ultimately became his own demise. And not only did it do Saul in, but now we have this man Haman, who seems to be a, a product of this, who is ready to launch a full-scale attack now against the Jews. You know, we never really see the full extent of the consequences of our sin. Because like I say, Saul could have thought, oh, what's the big deal? How's this really gonna hurt anyone? Don't we think that way sometimes regarding temptation or, or sin? Thinking this isn't really a big deal. This isn't really gonna hurt anybody. Yet if Saul could have caught a glimpse into the story of Esther now and see what this one man who's a product, it would seem of the Amalekites, of, of Agag, and what this one man was beginning to plot and plan, perhaps he would have thought twice about it. How we need to be those that, as Romans 13, 14 says, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Don't make any provision for it. Don't allow it to have any foothold, any room in your life to, to move. We need to do away with it. And that was the lesson for Saul and the Amalekites, the picture of the flesh there. Well, everything about Haman here is just, you know, these characteristics of Haman are just things that are despised of God. Tells us so in Proverbs 6, 16 and 19. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, Hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. You could put that list up next to Haman's name and just be like, check, check, check. Yeah, he fills each and every one of those things. Watch how, how Haman exemplifies these evil characteristics throughout the book of Esther here. Now, let me, let me give you a bit of an update on the timeline that we're at at this moment right now, because the book of Esther started in the third year of Ahazur's reign. Esther was made queen in the seventh year of his reign. Chapter two, verse 16 tells us that in the seventh year of his reign. But now, according to verse seven of chapter three, 
It's now the 12th year of his reign. In other words, Esther has been queen for five years. Queen for five years before things start to change and the plot kind of thickens. That's a lot of time where God has been kind of moving the characters into place. But also, he's preparing the players for what he was gonna do. Five years where Esther maybe has been serving as queen, wondering, what's the purpose in all this? Why would God put me here as queen? But these are times where God wants us to grow in our trust of him, where we may not always have the whole picture completed for us, but where we're saying, God, I don't totally understand or know what you have going on, but I'm gonna trust you, Lord. I know that in this time, you want me just to develop that faith and trust in what you're gonna be doing here, Lord. So help me just to rely on you, to depend on you, to keep holding on to you in these times. As we have to remember, God's never in as much of a hurry as we often are in wanting to carry out his plans and purposes. And that can be hard for us, just kind of waiting, but... These are times that God wants to do that work in us, preparing us for what he has coming down the way. So keep holding on to him, trusting him. Well, let's see how things unfold. And let's look a little bit more at Haman's character here. Verse eight of chapter three. Verse eight. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there's a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other people's and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. Now notice this here. Not only does our enemy, Satan, like to steal, kill, and destroy, just as Haman is seeking to do, but we know that our enemy is the father of lies. And notice what, what Haman is doing here. He's deceiving the king through lies. He's saying, all these people, they don't keep your laws. They're just nothing but trouble, king. We got to get rid of these guys. He's deceptive. He's, he's lying to the king. In chapter four now, Mordecai's devastated at this decree. He hears about it. This decree goes out that on a certain day, the Jews are to be kind of annihilated, wiped out. So he and Esther enter into a bit of a, a dialogue through the eunuch, Hathach, about what's going on. Mordecai, he tells Esther to go to the king now on their behalf. But Esther doesn't really like that plan too much because you see, nobody could just go up to the king. Even, even the queen. Nobody could just go up to the king. In fact, if you went up to the king without being you know, called upon, well, that could result in an execution. This was kind of a big risk for Esther to do that. In fact, she says she hasn't even been in front of him in the last 30 days. So she's kind of thinking, man, that's a bad idea. This, this is not a, a good plan here, Mordecai. But notice here, chapter four, verse 13. Here's what we read. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Great line in the book of Esther right there. So Mordecai here, he realizes 
that there's really no place for Esther to be safe. When all this starts to unravel, take on Jews, just because you're a queen, don't think that you're gonna be left safe. So, you know, what do you have to lose in a sense here in this place? The only place that we're safe is when we're right in the place that God has us. And Mordecai reminds her that this may be right where God has her for this exact purpose right now, to have that audience before the king, to be representing the Jewish people before the king of Persia. See, God's providence has a point. He positions us for his purpose. And that's exactly what Mordecai is revealing to Esther. Perhaps it's for such a time as this that God has brought you into the kingdom. Be ready to act, be ready to step out. Now, have you ever asked out of yourself, where has God placed you to carry out his purposes? How could God use you where you are to shine brightly for him or be that vessel that he can work through or be instrumental perhaps in impacting another life? Do you ever ask, Lord, what do you have me to do in this place that I'm at right now? Because you might look around and go, oh, there's no point in me doing that or there's nothing really for me to do. And yet we ask, perhaps it's for this very purpose that God has me here to speak into that life or to act in this way, to reveal this for that person, to be a witness in this way. We need to be asking God, what would you have me do? Fulfill that point of providence. Don't look at your placement as pathetic as though, ah, there's nothing here for me. Look at your placement as the position God will use you to bring his purposes through. And I'll check out Esther's response here because it's equally as good. Verse 15 of chapter four. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. That's amazing. Here's Esther now saying, okay, I'm willing to lay down my life. I'm willing to do whatever it takes here to move out and just trust the Lord in this. You know, Jim Elliott famously said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. There are those, you see, who profess to be true believers but who have never really counted the cost, who've never really said, am I willing to go all out for Jesus. In fact, Jesus said in Luke 9, verse 62, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. In other words, he's saying, if you're still holding on to stuff, then you're not ready for life with Jesus. The, the life of Jesus causes us or calls us to abandon all, to surrender all for the cause of Christ. It takes surrender, it takes laying your life down. That's what Jesus calls us to do, doesn't he? Luke 9, 23. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And Esther's commitment here serves as a model of what our commitment to Christ should look like, where we're ready to give all, where we're ready to lay it all down for the Lord. Paul echoed that same, that same sentiment as Esther, when he said in Acts 20, verse 24, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself 
so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul said that when people are saying, don't go to Jerusalem, it's not gonna go well for you, Paul. He says, no, none of these things move me. I'm not bothered by that. Why? Because he says, I don't count my life dear to myself. I'm ready to lay it down for the cause of Christ. I'm ready to go all out. If I perish, I perish. That was Paul's sentiment there. And that's what Esther is ready to do. See, commitment and sacrifice are the ingredients of a true believer. Are you counting the cost? Are you willing to give it all up for Jesus? You, you'll have so much more to gain when you do so. In chapter five, Esther comes before the king. She does what she says she's gonna do. They fast for three days. She puts on the royal kind of robes now and goes before the king and, and she finds favor with the king. He grants her whatever she wants up to half the kingdom. Perhaps he was kind of on the happy juice again there and he's like, whatever you want, baby, we'll give it to you. So up to half the kingdom, that's pretty good. So she asked for the king's and Haman's presence at a banquet that she's going to throw. They come, but the king says, what, what can I give you? And she's not quite ready. She says, Come back tomorrow night. Come back again, have the banquet, and I'll share everything with you there. So she's not quite ready to, to lay it all out on the table at that point, but she asked him to come back. So that gives some opportunity for this to, the story to kind of, again, the, the plot to thicken a little bit more. As Haman, you see, is heading home, he runs into Mordecai, who again doesn't bow. He doesn't tremble before Haman, and that just, ticks Haman right off. Again, gets him super angry, but Haman restrains himself. He heads home, and then he invites some friends over and tells him his frustration with Mordecai. Look at chapter five, verse 14. After, after Haman reveals to his friends and his wife kind of what this Mordecai's doing and how he's just bugging him, his wife, verse 14, his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows be made 50 cubits high. And in the morning, suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman. So he had the gallows made. So they all say, listen, just take Mordecai out. Just hang him. Let's do that. 75 feet high, put this thing up and take him out. Now, it's very possible this is more of a, a pole or a stake in which they would actually impale the people on the thing, very grotesque. And yet, here's now Haman. Then it says, you can just then go merrily with the king to the banquet. Very sad. So if you're watching this all unfold, you kind of be ready to, to write Mordecai off. Mordecai, good knowing you, but man, things are not looking well for you. Right? You're, he's in a real pickle at this moment. But now when you have God on your side, notice what happens here. As we continue on chapter six, verse one. That night, the king could not sleep. So one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the Chronicles and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told the big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers, who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Then the king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. So the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just 
so happened to enter the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. Here we see so clearly that when God may seem distant or, or that he's not helping, that he's actually at work and he's working all things according to his good purposes. You see, it's no coincidence that the very night Haman plots Mordecai's death is the very night that the king can't sleep. And so he says, man, put me to sleep, read me something. So they bring out the, the records of the Chronicles where it's been recorded what Mordecai did for the king, right? And it's no coincidence that Haman happens to walk into the outer court at the time that the king is looking for someone to address this all to. God is in control of everyone and everything. And he's working all things together for good. There's no, you know, there's no coincidence when it comes to scripture. Coincidence is not a kosher word, you know that. So God is at work here. And I love the conversation that unfolds. This is just, this is just too good, you know, to be true. Look at verse six of chapter six. So Haman came in. And the king asked him, what shall be done for the man in whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? So here's Haman, he's going, oh, the king's for sure talking about me. What should be done for this man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman just, I'm sure, just chest starts puffing out, head is just swelling. He's like, oh man, let me think of something really good to do for this man because it's gonna all come on me, right? Well, Here's how Haman answered the king, verse seven. For the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought which the king has worn and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on his head. Then let this robe and a horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback to the city square and proclaim before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robe and the horse, just as you suggested, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who sits within the king's gate and leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. Now I can just imagine Haman ready to fall down, faces just, the blood has just gone out from his head. He's just like, what? What? Mordecai, no! Freaking out at this moment here. And yet Haman now has to do that. He, who had a hatred towards Mordecai, who wanted to annihilate the people of Mordecai, now has to parade him around town and say, oh, whatever the king wants to do for this guy, let it be done. He's got to be the guy leading it. Look at verse 11. So Haman took the robe and the horse, arrayed Mordecai, and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. I mean, isn't this just too good? To be, like, you can't write this better. And yet this is exactly what God's doing. He's like not just foiling Haman's plots. He's just like giving him a dose of his own medicine here. I mean, this is just so good. Haman went from extreme boasting to extreme humiliation. Psalm 75 Six to seven says, for exaltation comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. And you might be in a situation where you think, how am I ever gonna get past this? 
or, or get through this person that's just causing so much trouble, so much problems for me. How am I gonna get out of this? And, and so often we wanna be the ones that are plotting and planning how we can get around this. And yet, how we just need to sit back and go, Lord, you can do this. And you can do this in a moment. You can cause that person that might be causing problems for me to have a dream at night where they're just like terrified of what they're doing and all of a sudden you just wake them up to the reality of, of, of how they're being and suddenly change them in a moment. We don't have to be the ones plotting and trying to plan out the demise of somebody. Let the Lord take care of that. <coughs> He's the one that brings down one but lifts up another as well. Well, in chapter seven, we see the king and Haman now come back to Esther's banquet as she had asked them to. And the king again asked her for her request. So now she lets the king know that there's someone who's been trying to destroy her people, the Jews. So chapter seven, verse five, we read this. So King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he? Who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And Esther said, the adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman who just happens to be right there with the king. So Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The chickens have come home to roost, right? Now in the original Hebrew, <coughs> that, that phrase, this wicked Haman, <laughs> adds up. If you take the Hebrew lettering, adds up to 666. Now I don't like to make a lot about that kind of stuff, but it's the number of the beast. Revelation 13, verse 18. See, Haman certainly foreshadows the Antichrist and everyone throughout history who has sought to take out the Jews. But it won't be done. Satan may be at work, but God has it all worked out already. All through scripture, we see men that have come onto the scene that have tried to thwart the plan of God through his people Israel, whether it be Pharaoh and then God raising up Moses or Haman, God raising up Esther or Herod and then God delivering Christ or Hitler who came on the scene and yet God using that to give Israel a rebirth. You see, all through history, God is preserving, often supernaturally, the Jewish people. Genesis 12, verse three, is alive and well. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's a promise that God gave to Abraham and to his seed, the Jewish people. And it is alive and well today. You can be sure of that. Well, chapter seven, verse nine says this, now, now Harbonah, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, look, <clears throat> the gallows, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. Then the king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. Just like Satan, the very means that he thought would bring victory became his ultimate demise. It was with Jesus on the cross that, that Satan would have thought, ah, finally, I got him. I'm the victor, I've won. But yet it was the cross that became the ultimate death blow for Satan. Haman saw the gallows as the thing that would cause him to prevail over Mordecai, but it became the means of death for himself. 
Although Haman now is taken care of, he's out of the picture. Thank the Lord for that. There's still a problem out there. Because the decree has gone out that the Jews are to be killed on a certain day. They're nine months out from that date. The date was given in chapter 3, verse 13. They're nine months away. And whenever a king had issued a decree, that, that decree could not be reversed, even if it was by the king. Nothing they could do to change it. So there's a problem still at work. They're still facing a, a people that have heard, on this day, you go and take out the Jews. So in chapter 8, Esther goes before the king again to ask what can be done. She also lets the king know now that Mordecai is her, is her relative. And so the king now gives Mordecai the signet ring, the king's signet ring that he had given to Haman that brought with it a lot of authority. And the king ends up telling them to write their own decree in the king's name and seal it with that signet ring there. Chapter 8, verse 8 reveals that for us. So they did just that. They wrote a decree, and here's what the decree was, that the Jews could defend themselves and kill anyone that tried to take their lives. Chapter 8, verse 11 is where it's recorded for us there. So now this decree is out where they're able to defend themselves, basically. And it's under the king's decree. Well, verse 16 of chapter 8. The Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. And in every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. Then many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. That is so cool. Here they are. And they're still not that day where they're waiting for people to come against them, where they defend themselves. They haven't even reached that day yet, but here they are. Now they're just moving forward in light, in gladness, with joy and with honor. And because of that, many people saw that and they're like, what's up with these people? I want to be like them. And many people in Persia became Jews. And I ask, man, how am I conducting myself? How am I living? Am I living in a way where people are going, man, I want what that guy has. Are you living in a way where people are going, Man, what gives? What, what's going on? How can you be like this? In the midst of this world we live in, how can there be gladness and joy in you? I want that. I'm missing that. I want to have what you've got. Are we living in a way where we're being that witness and leading others to desire what we have? Because, man, if we've got Christ living in us, then we've got everything we need. And it should be moving us on into just joy and gladness, being that light of the world. Well, chapter nine now, verse one, says this, now in the 12th month, that is the month of Adar, on the 13th day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. On the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred in that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. The Jews gathered together in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm and no one could withstand them because fear of them fell upon all people. I mean, this is just such a great underdog story. This is like, you know, Rocky Balboa kind of stuff right here. This is just great to see that all these people came. They're thinking, we're going to overpower these guys. And yet the opposite occurred. And the Jews overpowered all of them. I think all Hollywood movies, you know, the underdog story just comes right from Esther here. There's so much here for us, you know. This is exciting stuff. And so because of this great victory... 
Mordecai now established a feast that they should keep each year on these two days that the Jews overcame their oppressors. That's the Feast of Purim. And it continues on to this day. It's a feast that's filled with much joy and fun. It's one of their more popular feasts. They exchange gifts. They play games. There's costumes. There's much celebration that goes on. And during the Feast of Purim, the book of Esther is read aloud among the people. And each time Haman's name is brought up, people boo and they hiss. Everybody gets right involved with it. And every time Mordecai's name comes up, they cheer loudly. And so it becomes a great interactive sort of thing as they reread the book of Esther every Feast of Purim, every year as the Jews celebrate that. It's always a good and healthy thing to just remember God's goodness and faithfulness to us. And, and in the same way, it should cause great celebration in our lives to understand that whatever the enemy has sought to do, God has overturned that. God's brought victory for us. He's given us life. We're overcomers. And that should cause us to say, thank you, Lord. I wanna daily be remembering the goodness and the grace that you've shown to me and the work that you've done in my life. You know, even at a point in their history when God had exiled the Jews here to a foreign land and they weren't seeking him or calling on him by name, he still sovereignly protected them and delivered them from all their enemies. See, God was keeping his promises to extend the life of the nation through which the Messiah would come. And no matter how Satan arranged the plan or the pieces, the board will always ultimately belong to God. He's in control. Right when Satan might say, check, God comes along and says, checkmate, I got gotcha. you. And nothing you can do about it. God is providentially, sovereignly at work and controlling all things to unfold his plans and purposes. May we be those that are ready to say, uh, maybe it's just for this specific time and purpose that God has me here to be instrumental in carrying out his plans. May we be those that are ready to walk by faith in that trust God for what he wants to accomplish. Well, here's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to just have a little bit of a phone this. I'm going to get you guys to get into groups of like four, five, six people, if you want. Um, divide up, and we're going to got some questions up here on the board, okay? And I want you guys just to kind of discuss this in small groups. How are we doing for time? See, we got time. Look at that. This is wonderful. So, um, yeah, so move around. Just get up, move around, get in a group of four, five, six of you, and, and then um, just discuss these, these questions, these answers, and I'm gonna call upon some of your groups to you know, throw out some answers and responses uh, tonight here, okay? So go ahead, take a few minutes and discuss this together. <laughs> 